like the swarminess of Christmas. Um, so it's, it's always a privilege to be able to preach uh, the Advent series. Uh, I'm doing something this year I've never done before. In all my years of pastoring, I've never preached the Christmas story. Um, but here we've done the Psalms since I got here and Leviticus. Um, but uh, I've never done it. I figured you know it, but let's, we're going to do it this time. And this series is going to be called Christmas Stories because we're going to look at four different perspectives of Christmas and of the incarnation of Advent. And we'll be looking at Mary, the angels, the shepherds, and the wise men, and seeing how these different perspectives shed different lights on the Christmas story and how they impact us and how they ought to impact us. And with this one, um, Carl is right. It is called the Magnificat. And the reason it's called that is because in Latin, the first word in the song is Magnificat. It's magnify the Lord. And let me start with here. If you ever watched a musical, uh, or it be it on stage or on television or on, in a movie, have you noticed when the songs come in? So the purpose of the songs in the musical, just like an aria in an opera, it comes and the intent is to slow down the narrative, to take the story and something significant happens, and then now the story allows you a few moments to elaborate on that instance, on that event, on that, that thing that has happened. And it's meant to deepen it, to, to explain it. And, to, and every time you hear a song, you should know this. What they're singing about is important. It's part of the story, and you're meant to go deeper in it. And that's what the song does. It allows you reflect in a deeper way. And when you look at this story, well, let me use an example, actually. In The Sound of Music, when Maria, this Julie Andrews, does anybody know her as Maria? We call her Julie Andrews. Well, when, when the nuns are concerned that Julie Andrews is a terrible nun, what are they saying? How do you solve a problem like Maria, right? So the song comes in, and they dwell on this problem. And you know that's going to be a problem in the book or the story. If you look at The Lion King, when Simba and Nala, their young, young love begins to blossom, they stop and they sing Elton John's song, Can You Feel the Love Tonight? And the point is to say, this is important. Let's spend a minute dwelling on it so you don't forget it. And in Luke, it's important to note this, there's four songs or poems in the book of Luke, and all of them come in the first two chapters. So if you look at them, the Latin is what they've, they've all been, they're very famous. First one is the Magnificat, which we're covering, then the Benedictus by Zechariah, then Gloria by the angels, and then the Nunc Dimittis, which means um, the leaving, or uh, now let your servant depart, now departing. Um, I won't preach those. I guess you could preach those four. It's a good Advent series, but we're not going to. Um, but they're not actually all songs. Here's the, I, you, if you were here for Revelation, you know the angels don't sing in Scripture. Isn't that interesting? You always think they sing. In fact, did you know Charles Wesley in Hark the Herald Angels Sing was upset because they changed the words. He was Hark the Herald Angels Say. Wesley was a good Scripture man, right? He didn't like that they changed it. But... These songs are there. So if four songs are showing up in the first two chapters all around the incarnation and God's coming to earth, what are they trying to do? They're saying, listen, this is important. It's not only noteworthy, but it's something you have to remember. And they're using these songs to help you go deeper into them. And so what is the event that they're explaining? Well, they're explaining this coming of God when he writes himself into our story. And it's important for a number of reasons. One of them is because it tells us that God is not an absentee landlord. This watchmaker God also that some people talk about as if God sets the world and winds it and then lets it unwind on its own and, you know, he's not accountable for the problems. He's not really sovereign. It just goes back. He stands back and lets you sinners and us sinners have a mess. Unbiblical. 
God is, abs- is not absent. He's present. He is active. And he has come into the world to do something. And that's important. It's worthy of our spending some time. He's not a puppet master as well. And all the scholars across traditions, it doesn't matter if they're Protestant, Catholic, it doesn't matter, agree on two things about Mary. One, she is the first Christian. Two, she is, she is portrayed in the Gospels as the ideal disciple. Okay? And these two things are, uh, every Christian from 2,000 years has noticed that this is clear, and we're going to talk a bit about that. And so what this passage shows us is this. It shows us what a Christian is. And that's an important thing to talk about, even for amongst Christians, because for us who are believers, it's going to challenge us. When we see what is a Christian, it'll challenge us to say, boy, are we living out the calling that we've been given? And if you're a skeptic, it's also important, because as a guy who was a skeptic, and is now not, um, one of the frustrating things I find is I often have to explain that the world has misunderstood the gospel. The oftentimes, people think that Christianity means if you're good, you will be saved. This is moralism. And the amount of time I have to spend unwinding that silly idea is incredible. And part of the reason that that idea is so prevalent is through our crappy Christmas movies. Right? And I, listen, I love them. I am a sucker for a crappy Hallmark movie. I am. Okay? I know. You have a vote of non-confidence in your pastor now. Um, but, but this is... But, um, a few years ago... Sarah, poor Sarah, she hates them. She has to suffer through this season with me. And a few years ago, we had watched just about everything. We watch all the classics, right? You watch all the classic stories, which are also horrible and unbiblical. But I love them. And I decided, let's try a different one. And poor Sarah, I hope she doesn't remember this, but I think she will. I said, let's try this one. It's called Unlikely Angel with Dolly Parton. You know, how bad could it be? Right? And in the story, it's... You know, it's so classic. She, she dies in a car accident at the outset, and then she goes up to heaven, the pearly gates, and she meets Peter. And Peter is played by Roddy McDowell of, of uh, if you know him, of Planet of the Apes fame and such. And he says, you know what? You are, you're not a great person in life, so before you get your wings, you're going to have to go and do some good. That's ridiculous, right? First of all, there's nothing scriptural that tells you you're going to become an angel, when you die. Second, the idea is, if you're good, you'll be rewarded. You see how it gets there? How about It's a Wonderful Life, which I love. Remember Clarence, that little uh, the angel? Will I get my wings now if I do this right? Yes, Clarence, we'll see. You know, same idea. Christmas Carol, which I adore the story, but please don't use it as scripture, because the whole idea is that Scrooge at the end is changed, and he knows if he's a better man, he'll be saved. Right? They're all making a mess of the, doc- of the gospel. And as a result, if you're a skeptic here or listening or you bring your friends here, then be under- this, let this be a lesson to you as to what the gospel actually is and what Christianity is as we look at Mary. Because she shows us that Chris- Christmas, the Christmas story, brings a change. It tells us what that change is, and then it tells us how to make that change, how do we get that change. Okay? So, first, it brings a change. There was a... Um, uh, yeah, he, there was, he's dead, a uh, poet, a British poet named Francis Thompson, and he wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. became very famous afterwards, and here's how it opens. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of, t- midst of tears. I hid from him and under the running laughter. 
Upvisted hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and the voice beat, more instant than feet. All things betray thee, who betrayest me? And Thompson later would be credited by Lewis. Lewis, C.S. Lewis would say he was pursued by the hound of heaven. He felt like he was chased by God. And you see the same thing biblically in the story of Jonah, who tries to run, but God is chasing him and chasing him. And this is a very biblical understanding of what Christianity is. Christianity is something where a change that comes because God is pursuing you. In fact, when people say things like, I'm struggling, I'm not so sure, I feel like I should be at church more often, I feel like I should be reading my Bible, all these things. Or even if you're a skeptic saying, gosh, I just can't seem to escape these hints of wanting to go to church and the Bible and stuff just keeps coming up in my life, I would say that's actually a good sign because if God is pursuing you, you have no hope. If God is pursuing you, you will be caught. There's no option here. And that's a positive thing. Jonah learned that lesson, as many of us have as well. And what Thompson was getting at, and what Christianity fundamentally is, is this. It is a religion that is outside in. That it comes from outside you into you. That God comes, pursues you, and transforms you. That you don't change yourself, primarily. Which, of course, is, is true. And this is... Uh, Christian, see, so I've often hear people say things like, well, no, no, I, I can choose God, and I, I don't want to get into that debate again. I choose God. I, you know, I looked within me, and I saw God. Listen, the baby had to come because what was in you was the problem. He wouldn't have come. He didn't come for the chance for you to be saved. He came for, to save you. And this is vital to the Christian walk. You are not saved by your good works. You're saved by this baby who became the man who died on the cross for you. And the result of knowing this, Christians see Christians know this. Christians know that they have been worked on from the outside. And when they realize that, the next step that Mary shows us is amazement. Amazement is the most logical conclusion of salvation, of becoming a Christian. Christians who are not amazed maybe haven't grasped the fullness of what's happened to them, of, of this transformation. Mary, in verse 48 and 49 he has looked on the humble, humble, sorry, the humble estate of his servant. He has done great things for me. See, Mary is amazed that he has, has come and has been coming for her. Not just for Israel, that's true, of course, and that's a big, she's going to talk about that. But Christians realize, why? Why is he pursuing me? Why does the hound of heaven care at all for me? And this amazement pours out of Mary. In fact, it's so, so clearly a part of Christianity that you see every person saved in the New Testament is amazed. How about Paul? The Apostle Paul is saved, and he is shocked in 1 Timothy 1.15. There's no greater truth, right? This is, this is a trustworthy saying, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst, foremost, protos, I am the first. He's like a race, and I have beaten all of you in, in sinning, he says. And the amazement that God would save that, save Paul, overflows. And it leads us to sing, like, again, Charles Wesley, that beautiful old hymn, Can It Be? And Can It Be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued? See, he pursues us for life. We pursue him for death. Amazing love, how can this be? How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? This amazement is part of Christianity. 
And Martin Lloyd-Jones, a good old Welsh preacher, said, you know, and this amazement is proprietary. Only Christians have it. He says, and you'll know that even Christians who think they're Christians need to be careful. And he said, you can almost smell it on yourself when you're not. Because if you're a moralist, if you think your good works have saved you, like Dolly Parton. <laughs> not really Dolly Parton. Her character. I don't know Dolly Parton. But the difference, you can smell it on you, he says. Because he said, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the boast of the moralist, even if they're Christian, you know, they're doing the right stuff. They're coming to church. They're doing all that. You know that they're not amazed because when you talk to them about their salvation, they're really preoccupied by what has happened to them by them. See, they're more concerned with what they have done than what Christ has done. So it'll sound very pious, says Jones. He says, sometimes they'll say things like, I overcame my addiction. I, 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 I separated myself from relationships that were hurting me. I did all these things. And he says, in that you realize that they're drawing attention to themselves and what they have accomplished through Christ, rather than the other way around. And in this song, you see Mary, a woman who is transformed. She's changed. Because eight times in just six verses, eight times she uses the, the phrase, he has. And I can go through some of them, but, well, I'll go through all of them. He has looked on the humble state of his servant. He has done great things for me. He has shown his strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. He has filled the hungry with food. Um, he has sent, away, sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. And you see what Mary has done? She boasts entirely on what Christ has done and not what she is getting. Isn't it amazing? She has this incredible revelation that she's carrying the baby of God. And listen, she accepts it knowing that this is going to be an uncomfortable life for her. You know, can you imagine your daughter coming to you and saying, I'm pregnant, but it's God's. Come on. If you come to me with that, I'm sorry. I'm going to have a hard time believing it. Maybe I'm not as pious as Joseph. But... She knows it's a hard life, and she accepts it. And she's all the whole the whole song. Notice she doesn't talk about the baby at all. She's talking instead about what God has done. This is what happens when you're changed by the gospel. You become so preoccupied with what God has done, you have less time to think about yourself. And this is fundamental. It's right here clearly. And the result then is worship. Christians end up, you know, when you become a Christian, you start focusing on things you never would have focused on before. You start caring about the Bible and prayer and serving and going to church and eternity. And it changes everything, all of you. And when Mary says her soul and her spirit magnifies God and rejoices in her Savior, we, it's easy to get pre preoccupied with these words, and I do it sometimes. You look and you see, why does she say soul and spirit? And then why does she say Lord and then God? And I'm trying to figure out, right, the words, and, because they're all different words. Why is she doing this? And sometimes you think you're doing good, and it's good to do that. But you may miss the forest for the trees. Because really what she is saying is, all of me worships God. All of me, soul and spirit, the whole thing. I am all God's. I'm completely surrendered to him. Her life that may have been, probably well, all of ours, before God came was for herself. But now it's, it's all for him to magnify, to make big God. And this is the change that Christians have. If you're a Christian, you're changed. It's very simple. You're a new creature, and there will be a change in your life because of what God has done, not because of what you have done. So that's the first thing. Second thing we see is what this change looks like. Now here I'll go back to a Christmas carol because I do like the story, but don't use it as theology. But in it, Scrooge is at first described as, and I quote here, the first thing is a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Um, Dickens knew what he was doing. So... But then he also later 
describes in here as, as this. Scrooge says this about himself. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. Now, as a good skeptic, I'm always thinking, did he really change? Because I have a lot of people who talk about change, and there's that short burst of change, and then life goes back to the way it was. But Dickens assures us that he, he observed Christmas as good as any man in England after that. So we have to assume Scrooge was changed. And this leads me, and notice it, as a side note, notice what he says. All three of these spirits shall strive within me. See what Scrooge is saying? He's a moralist. But he gets this right. If I'm going to change, it's because something outside is inside me now, changing me. They have to strive within me. Why are they striving? Because Scrooge is going to resist it. And even Dickens knows that, and you and I know that as Christians. When we are saved, the Spirit is in us, but we continue to not want Him at times. We strive, we try, our flesh is weak, as Paul says. And as a result, our sanctification, our growth, the change that will happen in us is only because of God's persistence to finish what He started. Because you and I will push against Him constantly. If you don't, well, you're a liar. <laughs> we do. We push against Him constantly. And so, that's one thing. But then here's what I notice as well. There should be change in us. If you're a Christian, there will be change. Now, how much, how little, it's, we're all different. So, some have radical, quick change. Others, it's slow growing. I love that Paul refers to fruit as being, or the fruit of the Spirit and sanctification being like fruit. Well, fruit takes a long time to grow, which is good, because <laughs> it gives us hope. And, but there will be some change. I have the unlike. Uh, un, happy distinction of doing this. I once made myself a meal that I threw up from. Okay? That's, I'm not a good cook. Don't come to my house for Christmas dinner. Come for the turkey, stay for the salmonella. Um, so, so, but if I told you, listen, things are different now. I have the spirit of this guy in me now, Jamie Oliver. I have the spirit of Jamie Oliver. I wish I had his good looks, that handsome Brit. Um, if I said that and you came to my house for Christmas dinner, you would expect not throw up food. You would expect food that would be good. If the food was terrible, you would say, I don't think the spirit of Jamie Oliver is in this guy. Or it doesn't exist at all. But one way or the other, it's not happening. And so the challenge here is, is there change in our lives? Has the gospel actually made a difference in us at all? And when somebody says something like, so what, what makes you a Christian? Do you first say, well, I go to church, I read my Bible, so do you focus on what you've done? Or do you say, can you believe it? I'm a Christian because God chose to die for me. He forgave me. Who do we draw attention to? And now, Elizabeth shows this change. Or not Elizabeth, sorry, Mary, I was looking at my notes. Elizabeth is her aunt, also changed. But Mary shows this change is not just momentary, but it's lifelong. We see this in all of Scripture. We see Mary throughout the New Testament referred to. And here's some marks of what change should a little bit look like, at least partly, at least from Mary's perspective. The first thing is, when she goes to visit her aunt Elizabeth, who is also pregnant miraculously. Here you have a, an older woman, maybe a senior citizen, who's pregnant, and this girl who's 14, 14 to 18 years old, who's pregnant. And as, they arrive, as Mary arrives, Elizabeth heaps praise on her. How fortunate, how, what blessing that I would have the mother of my Lord come and stay with me. And she, blessed, is you because you, blessed are you because you believed what was told you. She heaps praise on Mary. And the first thing Mary does is turn it into a song that talks about God and not about her. 
And so one of the changes that comes is this humility of thinking, as C.S. Lewis says, see, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So humility isn't somebody who's really intelligent saying, oh, no, I'm really a dullard. Or a really beautiful or handsome person saying, oh, I'm kind of ugly. No, humility is saying, yeah, okay, I am. But praise God, what of it? See, and this is what Mary does. She accepts the praise and just points it right back to God. And this is one of the things that has to happen if you're a Christian. You magnify God. The word magnify, I've said, makes, it means to make something loud or to make it big, to draw attention to it instead of to yourself. And this is exactly what she does. Because she rejoices in God, her Savior, remember, and this is interesting, right? Mary doesn't present herself as perfect. She talks about having a Savior. She needs a Savior. So I'm not here to badmouth any other tradition, but Mary does not say she is perfect. She knows she needs a Savior. She knows she has a humble estate, all these things. And she pours all of this back to God. So that's the first change that comes is, maybe not in order, but we see it in the text, is this desire to draw attention to God and away from yourself as a Christian. Second thing we see is she, she moves brilliantly from singular to plural. The first few verses are all about how she has been blessed. God has blessed her. And then it moves seamlessly into plural and what God has done to the world and for the world and for Israel. And again, the attention of being a Christian, what happens is the Spirit then puts you uh, in a posture away from yourself. You look away from the mirror and you start focusing on what God has done for others. And this leads into the last part, which is how her entire identity is changed here. I know we talked about that a couple weeks ago, but her entire identity is changed. And this comes with adoption. The Bible talks about us becoming Christians as adoption, being adopted into God's family. And if you've ever been adopted or if you've adopted children, you know when that child is adopted, first of all, the child didn't choose the parent, right? That's not the way it works. Adoption agencies don't say, hey, kids, go out into the world and find parents. It says, no, no, the parent goes and pursues and looks for the child and finds the child. Having adopted the child, then what happens is that child gets all full rights of the parents in this culture of the father. And when that happens, you get the name, you get the bank, and you get the stories, you get the history. And so I wasn't adopted, I don't think. <laughs> now I'm in a crisis here. Um, no, but I wasn't adopted. But here's what I remember thinking clearly. I was a normal kid. Listen, I grew up in a, in a time when there was no wars. We didn't have to go fight a war, nothing like that. But my dad was a military man. He had been in wars. He had played uh, sports at a professional, semi-professional level, like a man's man. I remember him getting into a fight with a guy once at a golf course because the man disrespected a former World War II vet. So my dad was this honorable man, right? So I remember thinking, listen, I'm not like my dad, but if he could be brave, it's in my stock, isn't it? Like, isn't that part of my story? It's, and I remember thinking, this is who I come from. So there must be some of that in me to be honorable, to care about good work and hard work, to love my wife like my dad loved my mom. And that story that you bought your, your wed into, Mary is very keenly aware. You'll see in the community group questions this week that one of the questions scholars ask is, how could a 14-year-old girl write this? It's too theologically rich for a kid to write. I disagree, but you can talk about that in your groups. But one of the things that's important here is she understood that she was part of something larger, that what she was doing was not just for her, but she was woven in, into the story of Israel. And as a result, what was being done in and through her was God working for the salvation of his people. 
And being part of this allowed her to be humble, to realize it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about what, we're, what God is doing for his people. And this turn again away allows us to then say, okay, I may be or you may be gifted in one area, but God wants you to use that gift for his glory in his kingdom. So that may mean that you don't get the job that makes you a millionaire, that you instead take the job that will pay a bit less or you give away more money. Maybe he's giving you that role so that you can use it for his glory to finance things of the kingdom. We don't know. But this is the perspective that Christians get. Their identity is changed entirely, right to its very roots. And she can live radically because the gospel does, again, what C.S. Lewis says. He says, once you're saved, the gospel has this effect of working backwards. And what he means by that, Lewis, he says, you know, you live your life and then you become a Christian. And at that moment of becoming a Christian, you begin to look back and you begin to see the hound of heaven was on your tracks the whole time. And that that past that you had, that you were held captive by, you may have been abandoned, you may have been abused, you may have just been a failure in the world's eyes, whatever it is. He says, then, interestingly, you look back and you begin to see how God has made use of those moments, how God all the while has been leading you here. And because the gospel does this, it restores, okay, it restores, or sorry, it redeems your past, it gives your present purpose, and it gives your, it makes your future assured, and because of that, you can, in a much more holistic and better way than Scrooge, live in the past, present, and the future. You're changed completely because your past is now your father's past and your family's past, not your own only. Your present is redeemed because now you have a past and a future to live for. And because the future is assured, you can live radically and boldly. And if you want to use Scrooge again, what did he do? He goes and he buys, he spends his money, he starts pay, doesn't he pay off Bob Cratchit's mortgage, you know? He starts living radically because there's nothing more for it. The world has nothing more he needs, and he means it. And this is what the change comes, what it looks like. So there's a change. It looks in part like this. And then how can you be changed? Because here's the challenge, isn't it? We preach these Christmas stories. People watch the movies, well, unfortunately, um, every year. But why is it that some people are saved and some people are not? What's the difference there? Why is it that some people hear the Christmas story and think, it's a throwback, it's ancient, it's stupid, it's, it's super, superstitious and all that. But others hear it and they fall on their knees. Why? Well, let me use one more guy. His name is Lawrence Overmeyer. Lawrence Overmeyer was a poet. And um, he, something of a Renaissance man. This, this guy's an American, he's still alive. I think he's 60 only, he's not that old at all. And um, poet, did I get a chuckle from some older person saying, I, you're over 60, you're like, well, it's not old, that's really young. Um, but anyway, Lawrence Overmeyer wrote a book that I assume made him a lot of money, and it was called, uh, I'll get the actual name, The One Idea That Saved the World. And when you read it, you realize his one idea is this, and I'll sum it up. Being good or being evil is not something that is inherent in our nature over which we have no control. Rather, we define ourselves by the choices we make, moment by moment, situation by situation. All it takes is an act of the will to be the best we can be. And so what Overmeyer is saying is, listen, you want to save the world? I know nobody else seems to know, but I know the secret, says, says Overmeyer. And the secret is this, just try harder. That the problem is you're not making the right decisions. You know, you, inherent in you is not a good or bad person. You've just got to be careful, discerning, methodic, and make the right choices. Just when, so he would say, for instance, if you're tempted to be a drinker, an alcoholic, listen, what you need to do is muster up the willpower 
to say no to the drink. When you're uh, an adulterer or a thief, just muster up the will. When you want to start a war, muster up the will. Try harder. Now, great things can be done by human willpower. People can accomplish incredible things. But the great problem with Overmeyer is he thinks that, the, that we can make the world perfect and better by trying harder. Just try. You know? And this, the big error that, that he makes is this. The problem isn't that we make bad decisions. The problem is we can't make good decisions. So it's not like we're just not, we're, we're too hasty. No, no, no. We're incapable of making good decisions consistently. That's the problem. There's a root issue here, Mr. Overmeyer. You know, it's kind of like, um, and I'll pick, I mean, we've all done this. You think something like, you know what, what I need is if I really just committed to my diet this Christmas, I'd be thinner. I wasn't trying hard enough last time, but this time I can do it. That's a simple one, but you see how classic that is? It's, or, or let's use golf. I love golf because it's such a great metaphor for everything. Golfers mostly stink, right? And <laughs> so you, you shoot 100, but you hit one really good shot. And you say, that one shot, that's the real me. <laughs> the 99, no, 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 that's a mistake. I just wasn't trying hard enough. I wasn't focused. You were talking in my backswing, right? But that one shot, and this is the human problem. We think if we, say, if we just try harder, things will get better. But Mary's change is not willpower. Mary's change is clearly something that comes outside and fixes the inside. And um, what it is, and I'll, she's, she's hinting, you know, the hint of what Mary's change, where it comes from, is found at an echo that she makes in her song from Isaiah 1, or sorry, 12, verse 1 and 2. Here's what Isaiah wrote. This is how he's talking about the day of salvation, when God would come and restore Israel. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Now, when Mary meets the angel Gabriel before, when she hears a story about how she's about to be impregnated by the Holy Spirit, which is like, what? Um, she, did you notice something? Everybody who meets God or the angel of God in the Bible is terrified. And the angel right away, and Mary is too, because it says when she sees him, she is terasso in the Greek, which means terrified. So she's terrified at first. But and, and with good reason, because every time God shows up in the Old Testament, or at least most of the time, it's usually in wrath. He's usually coming to, cause, <laughs> to, to punish and to discipline Israel. So it's understandable that like Pavlov's dog, when they hear the bell ring and there's God, it's like, what I do? So she's terrified at first. Now, it's kind of like in Amos, the book of Amos has maybe the most chilling words in the entire Bible in chapter 4, verse 12. He, God says to Israel, prepare to meet thy God. Oh man, I can't even read that without falling down. And so she is terrified, and yet she's afraid, but here she is singing. She can stand in the presence of this holy God who she justly deserves justice from and wrath from, like all of us sinners do, and yet she can be rejoicing and happy and praising and following him. Why? Where, why is it that she sees this God and she isn't turned off, but instead is drawn to him? And the reason is, the moment after Gabriel says to her, do not be afraid, you have found favor with God. So you see this, here's the gospel for all of us. The difference between some and others is this, when we see the, the holy God, those of us who are fortunate enough to hear, 
Not the wrath we think we deserve, and we, which we do deserve, but instead grace. Because she knows she deserves wrath but receives mercy, she's changed. Remember in Isaiah 6? Isaiah 6, I mentioned it to you before, I'm sure. Isaiah falls on his face when he sees God. Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He falls down destroyed like a puddle. And then, a couple verses later, he says, here I am, send me. Why? Because when the angel comes flying towards Isaiah with a hole in his hand, his hand, its hand, and he comes and he goes and places it on his lips, the coal, the fire of God in the Old Testament is destruction. And he's expecting destruction because he's unclean. And then when he gets it, what does he get told? Your sin has been forgiven. Because he knows he deserves wrath, but he has received grace, he's changed. He's God's forever. Mary has the exact same response as that angel, as, as, as Isaiah does. And this is Christmas. When you look at the manger, and when you hear that God is coming, you ought to expect trouble. But when he comes, and instead he comes and says, I have not come to judge, but to save. When you hear that, Christmas should change you. It should cause you to sing with Charles Wesley again in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which is Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, Peace on Earth and Mercy Mild, God and Sinners Reconciled. I always thought it was God and Sin is Reconciled, but God can't be reconciled to sin. But he can be reconciled to sinners. And when you know it to be true, when you have experienced what Mary did and what Isaiah did, then you will not just sing those words at church, but you'll testify to them. That we won't need to have questions about, boy, the congregation didn't seem into it this morning. If you're not into it, maybe, just maybe, and we're all guilty of it, maybe, just maybe, you're not so sure that you've been forgiven everything right now. Maybe something is clouding your judgment. Maybe you're not aware of how much you've been given. Maybe you forgot that they sing about it continually in the first two chapters. And I get it, but this part, let's continue to look at the cross, continue to look at the manger, so that we will constantly have our hearts melted by the gospel so that we'll be a people like Mary. See, because Mary knows she was changed from the outside in. She didn't deserve it, and so she praises God. And so will you when you meet the child given for you that is not just your judge, but your Savior. Let's pray.